Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hi, my name is Tom Salemi. I'm Content Director of Healthogy, and welcome to Breaking Health, the new podcast series affiliated, affiliated with our Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is going on at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Boston on November 3rd. This podcast series, like our other podcasts in ophthalmology and medical technology, is our way of continuing the conversations that started our conferences. Innovation and insight don't occur only one day a year, so we're building ways to keep the dialogue going after the conference lights go down. But we're particularly excited about this digital health project, not because the area has seen such growth in recent years, which it obviously has, but because we're bringing in a real partner to help moderate this weekly conversation. I'm happy to introduce Steve Krupa, CEO of Silos Group, as the host of the Breaking Health podcast. Steve, welcome to your podcast. Yep, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. I'm really grateful to have you take this project on, uh, but I'll need to ask the first question of this podcast. (laughs) What, what drew you to want to host a podcast? Well, you know, it, 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 part of being a venture capitalist is uh, talking to CEOs and leaders in the industry. And, and these conversations are a lot of fun. Uh, they're interesting. They give you a sense of where uh, healthcare is going and where technology is headed. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to document those conversations uh, at this point in time, given that we're in the midst of significant rebuilding of the healthcare system. So... Um, I'm going to try to talk to as many people as I can that are pay, playing a, a critical role in doing that rebuilding. Well, I'm really lucky to have you do this. It's nice to have someone who brings more expertise, actually sat down at the tables, negotiating the deals to, to ask the questions that, uh, that need to be asked. So thank you for, uh, for taking this on. You've already got one, uh, one podcast under your belt. You've uh, had a conversation with Robert Mittendorf, Dr. Robert Mittendorf, yeah. who's the chair of our Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Uh, how did that uh, conversation go? Yeah, Robert is, uh, is a very interesting guy. He's a, he's a VC like me. Um, he has uh, an impeccable educational background. Uh, I think that uh, one of my assistants was researching his background and they wanted to know if he was available. <laughs> um, but he's, uh, he isn't. He's married, actually. Um, but you know, he's um, been at Johns Hopkins in biomedical engineering, in Harvard Business School and Harvard Medical School, Stanford Hospital, and continues to practice medicine as an, as an emergency physician. So he's an investor today and a, I guess, part-time doctor. And his perspective on investing is certainly informed by the time he spends in the emergency room and the opportunity he has to deal with technology uh, as it begins to present itself to doctors on a more regular basis. He's been a a great co-chair. He's really uh, put a lot of effort into putting together the agenda, which I know you'll hit upon in the conversation. He's also uh, had a bit of a a stint in marketing, so he was able to uh, offer some some input on our marketing campaign as well. So we're lucky to have Robert. And we're we're lucky to have you as well as the host. I think we should probably just hop into this conversation and uh, let's begin the podcast. Absolutely. Here's my conversation with Robert. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks, Steve. Uh, the agenda for, for, for the summit is, is awesome, and, and I want to I get to that. Uh, and I know you had a meaningful hand in developing it. Uh, 
um, and the themes that are that you're exploring are, are exactly where I know a lot of investment capital is going these days in in health healthcare. But if it's all right with you, um, you've got a very interesting background. I'd like to just talk a little bit about what got you here. Um, you know, you've got a great background in science and medicine, and uh, Johns Hopkins and Harvard are not bad places to get your education. Um, when and, and where were you when you decided that uh, with all the medical education, you also wanted to become an investor? Yeah, well, I think um, that's a great question, Steve, and I appreciate the, uh, the, the intro. Um, I, I would say in general, my interest in, in technology uh, started pretty early, and my interest in being involved with organizations and people that are uh, building technology to improve healthcare uh, was started also at a relatively young age. Um, when I was uh, you know, way back, even in high school, um, I had the privilege in, in Washington, D.C. to work uh, in a number of uh, capacities <clears throat> kind of outside of school, helping program uh, in, in kind of intelligence environments, so people that serve the Defense Intelligence Agency and the CIA and others. And in that, I learned that uh, you can really have an effect with technology on the workflow of, of mission-critical uh, applications. It was after that, you know, thinking about that, that I decided that, that it would be uh, more exciting for me personally to, uh, to apply technology in improving the benefit uh, um, of health to people. And so that's where my, my tour in medicine started, which was, uh, you know, to become a biomedical electrical engineer and then to go to medical school uh, to, you know, go to business school while I was at med school and then uh, to find a, a specialty of medicine that really put me at the tip of the spear of how healthcare is delivered. Yeah. Uh, and that informed my choice to be uh, an emergency physician. <clears throat> so that, that idea of kind of investing or being part of the entrepreneurial game um, was, was pretty early. Um, I think it, as an emergency physician, I, got, I get to see, and I still do in practice, all kinds of healthcare problems both from a systems level, but also at the individual patient level, uh, at the disease level. And uh, it, it certainly fuels my interest in uh, helping to deploy capital to create attractive returns, but also to have meaningful healthcare impact. Yeah. The, the emergency physician is, I, I, is like the Ray Donovan of healthcare, right? I mean, you fi you're the fixer. People come in and say, uh, uh, you meet them once, you, you address their issue, and you move them on. But you get to do pretty much everything, right? You get to, to know about uh, cardiology. You get to know about, uh, certainly, I'm sure, a lot of orthopedics and so on and so forth across the whole spectrum of the, of the different things that people encounter physicians with, with physicians. Um, so I'm sure that probably helps you uh, as you begin to think about workflow, right? Isn't workflow one of the biggest and, uh, issues in the emergency department itself? It is, and I think it's it's a great point. It's a big problem throughout healthcare delivery, um, and I think of the ED as a microcosm of the you know any healthcare system, but most importantly, because of where I'm at in the U.S. health system, um, <clears throat> we hear this all the time, but it's really true. the The age of patients in the U.S. is going up. The number of diseases those patients have are going up because, luckily, they're living longer to some extent because of how we're helping them. Sure. Um, but the number of providers and the complexity of care, the number of providers is staying flat, maybe going up a little, and the complexity of care is going up for a myriad, a myriad of reasons. 
in that environment, um, the workflow of physicians has gotten much more complicated. And actually, the workflow of, of healthcare teams, so not just doctors, but teams of people are taking care of patients now, teams of providers. And so that adds to the complexity of, uh, of providing care as well. So all of that <clears throat> makes the interesting problem of workflow one that is, is critical from an economic but also a clinical perspective. The, it's interesting to me also, I, I remember maybe five years ago, I went up to uh, Beth Israel Deaconess up in, in Boston, and they had this, this digital whiteboard in the emergency room where you could look up and see all the cases, and they were beginning to deploy technology uh, to help them with the workflow. And you know, one of the questions that came up was, how are doctors responding uh, to the use of technology in in an area where they were in large part required to to think on their feet, do you think there's a, a generational difference between how physicians respond to technology absolutely um, i I would make the same analogy to telemedicine um, or to using a video on uh, you know synchronous video <clears throat> if you look at um, the over sixty five age group um, they're using video if you ask them why. It's frequently there's two or three percent of, of them are using it to watch their grandkids, you know, in a different city. If you ask a 25 year old whether they're using video or watching it or interacting with with video on FaceTime, it's a much much higher number, and there's about a hundred more applications for why they're using it. <clears throat> I think it's an important distinction because uh, you know there are lots of similarities among humans of different age groups, but Technology is something that does take, has a specific adoption curve with, uh, you know, a specific set of product market needs that fit together for it to be adopted. I would say if you go back to doctors, and I was fortunate actually as a Stanford resident where I did my training to see the conversion from one EHR and a lot of paper, actually a lot of paper order writing in the ED, ER, to an EPIC implementation, I was fortunate to see that transition. And I would say you know, for a lot of the negative press that electronic health records get for their user interface, there's a good percentage of doctors of, of the generation that I'm in that think that actually the templates and the workflow which are present, uh, you know, in, in a number of EHR implementations actually makes our day easier, hmm. reduces errors, makes things faster. There are others that think that um, <clears throat> there's additional cumbersome aspects of that documentation that slows them down. And, and, and many others to think that that documentation doesn't have the natural language flow that our notes used to have. Um, so there are sacrifices on either side, but I would, uh, my personal view is that even notwithstanding the user interface challenges of a number of electronic health records out there, I personally think they have made me faster as a provider um, and that the workflow improvements, not to mention the billing and other improvements, are, are worth the, uh, the time invested and potentially the money. Well, I mean, theoretically, someone presents themselves into the emergency room, you know nothing about that patient, right? I mean, when they first, other than what they're prepared to tell you when they, when you fill in, when they, when they, uh, when they fill out their forms when they first get there. And, you know, one would hope that there's a future uh, where you could, even if it wasn't, um, even if they weren't coming to a hospital that they, they had been to before, uh, where you would be able to get to access some form of comprehensive record about those patients. Well, that, and that, that future is here today, Steve. What you just identified is one of the formative changes in the practice of medicine that's happened and is often frequently talked about quietly. 
And that is, you know, when you're in medical school learning how to address a patient, you start by understanding their chief complaint and their history of present illness, understanding their past medical history, and then you do a review of systems. And then after all of that, which is a conversation with the patient, you do a physical exam. In, in today's world, many practitioners, uh, including myself, when I see a patient show up on my list, which is now an electronic list in the ED, the first thing I do is what we call a chart biopsy. I look at what they've put into the nursing note as their chief complaint, and I drill into their record to pull everything I can into my head before I go talk to them. That makes my conversation far more valuable with them, where I don't have to review data that I already am, am supposed to know, and I can focus on the exact issues they have today as it relates to everything that's happened to them in the past. That is a massive time savings that's only possible with the electronic health record. And have you, I, I, know, you're, I know you're still seeing patients today. Um, are you seeing that as, as being there in place in a, in, or is it just getting started? No, that's in place today um, in, in any place that has a, a relevant, and I say meaningful use, one or two certified EHR in place. Um, I think also what's getting more interesting, which is happening in California where I practice, is we now have stood up health information exchanges, which have been the promise of health IT for years, where I can actually look at the medical records of a patient in detail that may have never been to my hospital before, but has been to the hospital across town uh, and has a, a distinct record there that was not accessible to me even a year ago because of information technology. Yeah, no, that happened to me the other day. I, I had to go in for a doctor's visit, and he had a bunch of information about me that I had no idea he'd know about. You know, he had a bunch of doctor's notes from a previous visit that I had to an, a different doctor and a different health system that somehow had gotten scooped up when he did his query about me, and I thought that was pretty awesome because he actually, the, the, the physician actually thought to ask me about uh, a specific test uh, and, and so forth, and I said, wow this stuff is really starting to happen. Uh, whereas three or four years ago, um, I think you'd probably have to say that probably wasn't happening. So there was some, this is some of the good that I guess has come from the High Tech Act, uh, among other things. Um, and maybe, um, well, well, let's get to that subject because it, it was a good bridge, I guess, to some of the content in the summit. Um, the fundamental question of interoperability between all of these systems there, there is a day in which I think some of us dream that we'll have enough data whereby the computers will begin to help physicians uh, make some sort of a diagnosis or provide assistance in a diagnosis. Um, do doctors see that as a valuable prospect? I think many do. I think <clears throat> you're pointing to we have other code words for some of the parts of the things you were talking about. Um, I think interoperability is one, one uh, word that we use to describe the sharing of information and interfaces, which enables lots of other things. Um, I always start with this discussion and thinking about <clears throat> the idea of an EHR as a way of counting, of measuring, and storing data. Um, on top of that, you have the idea of, of analyzing data, whether it's within a particular patient or among patients. Um, and that analysis could lead to valuable insights. For example, 20% of my patients have wound infections when they leave the OR. Why is that? You know, let's try to figure out why that's the case. If I hadn't counted wound infections and I weren't able to answer the question of how many have wound infections, I wouldn't be able to target my insight, my, uh, 
my uh, analysis to that. Um, and then, and we think about <clears throat> analytics in a in a diagnostic way, in a predictive way, which is to say that if we continue doing that same thing in the OR, we will probably still have predict that we will have a 20% rate of infection to prescriptive analytics, which is to say that, well, if we were to increase hand washing or change the antibiotic that we're using or change when the antibiotic is given relative to the first incision, we may reduce the wound infection rate. That prescriptive analytic also follows what you're saying. I think uh, the last part is um, delivering that prescription to the individual patient, which some call decision support and others called digital therapeutics, where we take all that we've learned from populations, <clears throat> take all that we learned about an, a unique individual, apply insight that we've learned from those populations to that individual to deliver a unique prescription for that person um, uh, as to what to do, whether it's a drug regimen, whether it's a behavioral modification regimen, whether it's a surgical intervention, that prescription for an individual patient um, uh, is, I think, what you're talking about. And I think all of that follows the initial basis of collecting information, analyzing it, and then overlaying the models that we have of care that we've learned over years and years and years to figure out what to do next. Yeah, and of course we can imagine that the result of all of that is a more efficient, less expensive way of delivering health care at the end of the day. Um, that, w that in fact uh, you are devoting you know, your investment time uh, to trying to find the companies that will help make those things make that happen, and uh, and I'm alongside you in that effort for sure. Um, let's let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the summit because I know um, you've actually touched upon in just this you know brief uh, couple of minutes we talked about uh, your work as a physician, some of the elements of the summit and and what will be discussed there. But obviously, uh, what's out there today is vast computing power. Uh, vast amounts of data that's being collected by electronic health records and personal data that's being collected and so on. And there is now a notion that we can do a number of pretty powerful things uh, with that computing power and that data in order to basically improve health care and hopefully lower the cost of health care. And, and, I, and I think some of those areas that you identified for the summit are the areas in which uh, venture capitalists like us, are spending a lot of time figuring out uh, how to invest in. So maybe you can give us just an overview of your agenda, and maybe we can dig into a couple of those areas. Yeah, I'm happy to. And I, I'd like to start, actually, before jumping into some themes as to how, start as to how we got to the agenda we got to. Um, I'm fortunate to have a really impressive group of advisory member board members as well as um, uh, sponsors who have been intimately involved in the uh, creation of the agenda. And, and to, to, to kind of give you the short story, we as a group collectively looked at all of the things we've been thinking about investing in and grappling with and created the top, call it the top 10, I think it's actually top 11 or so list of major themes that we are interested in either investing in that we've already invested in. Um, <clears throat> as the conference is really focused on bringing together three groups of people. Uh, private equity investors and venture capitalists in digital health, healthcare IT, uh, consumer health, um, number one. Major strategic players like Optum and Cerner um, uh, that play in that space. And then uh, commercial stage growth and venture companies that are kind of the higher flyers in the space. And I think we've, they've, the conference has achieved that over the last 
number of years, and we're just trying to maintain that mantle this year. So when you jump into the themes this year, if you look at some of them, and I'll point some of them out, I think you'll find that these are topics that, uh, that are, are not overplayed yet, but uh, are, you know, many of them are, are not new. We will be providing some new insights within some of these uh, topics based on how the individuals we've selected for the, the panels uh, um, think about the issues. So for example, one of the major themes we've been looking at for years is this idea of value-based care. Um, there's a lot of opportunity out there to see the U.S. healthcare system moving from a fee-for-service environment to what CMS has called alternative payment um, means. Now that could be bundle payments, that could be capitation, which is now called you know, accountable care. Uh, that could be um, <clears throat> kind of warrantied procedures. I think one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest debates in the field is there's a lot of discussion around value-based care, but if you go and talk to the provider systems out there, um, and you know it depends on which ones you talk to, the move to value-based care is much more fitful and uh, non-linear than one might think. A lot of providers are grappling with a multitude of different payment mechanisms. So before where they might have dealt with seven fee-for-service payment schemes, all of which responded to the same, say, CPT code architecture, now they have maybe 15 different payment schemes, some of which are 90-day bundles, some of which are fee-for-service, some of which are capitation, each of which may alter, modestly alter how they care for an individual patient. And so one of our themes called value-based care from Ripple to Tsunami is centered around that debate with some leading individuals, Steve Wiggins, for example, from Remedy, I'll give you as an example, who's really um, <clears throat> leading some major, uh, a major organization that's, that's working in the bundle payment space. Um, so that's one theme. Well, Another that's, one that Just to jump in there, for, that's yeah, the whole please. idea where, uh, you know, doctors have worked basically like lawyers in some way, shape, or form for as long as we can remember. You go to see the doctor and they get paid by somebody for that work, that unit of work of seeing you. And the concept here is to say, well, doctors and hospitals and other parts of the care system actually work together to deliver some sort of a unified set of services to deal with the individual patient's condition. And that, and that the fee-for-service model is not necessarily the most efficient or, or quality-based indicator as to as to how the, those providers should be compensated. Is that, is that a way to think about it? Absolutely. And I think uh, to, be, to be a provider organization that deals with multiple payers, each of which have different incentives or payment schemes, requires information systems, analytics, and population health uh, methods. Um, those are two of the other themes that we're going to be exploring. In the analytics section, we have um, organizations like Optum, Labs, Explorus, which was acquired by IBM, a health analytics company acquired by IBM, and Health Catalyst, um, uh, one of our portfolio companies in the uh, provider-based health analytics space, uh, describing how their businesses are addressing the challenges that the provider organizations out there have in uh, meeting the new uh, uh, kind of ways of getting paid. <clears throat> I think along those same lines, you're seeing uh, CMS, and certainly I'm not speaking for CMS, but you're seeing CMS evolve in their idea of how to improve uh, physicians' adoption of population health uh, mechanisms. And I think we see that, at least my interpretation of what happened last uh, Halloween with the chronic care management codes, is CMS 
it's tempting to, to say we will pay doctors in a fee-for-service world to start managing patients outside of the office as we try to transition to more accountable-based uh, care uh, because that transition is such a big one. It's such a massive mind shift in the provider world that we need a little bit of help here to get patients and doctors to think about care as not episodic but longitudinal. Uh, and so that's another theme. We have um, the SVP of Population Health at Partners as well as the CEO of Evalent uh, that are in that theme that we'll be talking about that. Yeah, it's, inter- it's always interesting to me how, how this industry relies so much on CMS to progress innovation in terms of doing business. Um, that, that really what, what I think will probably happen here is as they begin to roll out these experimental reimbursement mechanisms, and they're being quite aggressive from what I can tell, um, there's, an, there's an opportunity for if they work for those, uh, for those techniques to work their way into the commercial insurance business as well. Right. Yep. I, I would expect that as, as typically happens. Um, I think the leadership they've shown is, is, uh, has been amazing. Um, providers are still trying to figure out how they will, how they will uh, reach the goals that uh, these new markets are, uh, are kind of creating. So I kept a couple of other themes that will continue down this route, which you know, we're very uh, excited about, include um, digital therapeutics, which I, I think also fits into this, this play of using, um, using new technologies, specifically mobility, <clears throat> taking applied protocols in um, clinical medicine and translating them into uh, the world that we all live in now, in a consumer-friendly world with mobile devices where people uh, uh, like to interact on a minute-by-minute or, or daily basis with, uh, with care providers, coaches, and with, um, with systems and technologies that work. And I think within that theme, there are a number of companies we have uh, on, the, on the docket that are interesting. I'll just mention one, Omada Health, which... Uh, is a company that has taken a well-established clinical protocol called the Diabetes Prevention Protocol, um, which has demonstrated that over a 16-week period, you can, if you educate a patient that is pre-diabetic, you can cut in half their risk of ever becoming diabetic by educating them on the triggers to, um, you know, eating improperly, on how to how to uh, maintain proper activity so-called behavior change, which we all grapple with in the U.S. Uh, in, in chronic disease, and has shown that not only could they reproduce and potentially even approve upon the study results uh, on the bricks-and-mortar uh, DPP programs out there, but um, also have higher engagement. So this is a company that took a well-established clinical program, built a whole technology infrastructure and mobile platform around it, um, deployed it, did a clinical study to show that their results were as good or better than the bricks and mortar, and now is selling that program to employers and uh, payers and providers interested in preventing diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously has a major impact on healthcare costs because just the diagnostics of becoming a diabetic increase your um, your costs by thousands every year. Right. I mean, that really is the gateway to a disintegrating health health condition for people once they get diabetes and it becomes very very difficult if it uh, progresses for too long to to really come back from it it's quite amazing right right um, I think one other note on Omada is that they also have developed a new payment 
methodology for digital health. And in effect, they are a digital healthcare provider. They are reimbursed directly for their services. So they don't sell through to a provider that then gets reimbursed. They uh, re- get reimbursed directly from a, a payer in many cases. So um, they found their own code. And, and that is, I guess, part of what CMS is trying to do is figure out um, how to create a code for digital health or digital consultations and so forth. Exactly. Or apply uh, the modifier for you know, virtual visit to a number of existing codes. I think you know an, another theme, Steve, that I think is going to be a very uh, interesting debate um, and, and discussion and conversation is around the rise of the consumer with convenience, quality, price, and brand taking hold. And this one is one that I'm particularly interested in hearing the debate on. We've got the CMO of Walgreens. We've got um, a leading executive from Collective Health and the CEO of Accolade. I think the um, you know the, the, obviously the trend since the ACA was uh, uh, you know passed and then reaffirmed is that the Cadillac tax, uh, or whatever name you want to call that, has driven the commercially insured market to lower the benefit given to uh, employees. And as a result of that, for the same amount of healthcare costs, they had to shift that cost to patients or employees in the form of higher deductibles. In that high deductible environment, consumers are no longer paying 50 bucks for a doctor visit as a copay or 20 bucks. They're paying $200 for the doctor visit. They're paying $500 for, you know, a low-cost CT scan if they can find one. And in that environment, the decision shifts to this consumer who's now grappling in the era of post-cast lights, uh, you know, um, launch with how to decide what to buy from whom, when, uh, and why even. And I think there's a whole number of things happening in that space that are really exciting to think about that will empower consumers but also have danger for that same person as a patient, you know, in terms of preventative illness and doing the things that you should do for your chronic disease, even though they cost you money under your deductible. So I think that's an exciting debate that we're going to see on uh, November 3rd as well. Yeah, I mean, I have friends that think that, that, that it's very difficult to treat chronic illness well at, when there's high deductibles in place. And, and you know, one, one, one very interesting solution is to begin to allow chronically ill patients to get financial rewards for being compliant with their, with their uh, personal health regimen uh, as, as part of the solution for that. But, but, I mean, certainly we're so much, we're so at the beginning of this. It's almost as if healthcare was always something that was bought for us, um, and now it's something that the consumer has to actually figure out how to buy from them for themselves and how to manage for themselves. Um, and I don't think most of the companies out there, uh, the hospital systems and the insurance companies, have a lot of expertise when it comes to understanding a consumer and tailoring their products and services for them. W- would you agree with that? I would, I would entirely agree. I think they've, um, you know, and for, for good reason, they've been focused on the, the payers to generalize have been focused on the providers and the networks of providers they've effectively employed through payment, the reimbursement, and of course the insured employers, self-insured employers that they work with, um, along with the group plans, they've not been dealing with the consumer. Uh, By the same token, the providers have not been dealing with the consumers. Um, One example is that 
the medical debt write-off from provider organizations has started to skyrocket because before they were talking about co-pays uh, and smaller bills with smaller deductibles. Now some people leave a hospital with a $6,000 bill from the hospital, which is commonplace because they are not very far into their deductible this year. And uh, hospitals are also grappling with these changes in that they've had to deal with getting that cash back from payers before, which is a different game than getting it from consumers. Um, not to mention the, all the other issues you've, you've spoken about. I think it's a, just a very different world. Um, and I think you know the one the one thing that I've always been mindful of is there is a, an existing world of healthcare delivery and payment which we can't just push aside. Right. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Um, so we have to find solutions that fit within that world that are synergistic with that world. And I think that's where the magic occurs. I think um, disruption for the consumer here happens in ways where the existing system still works as we add it on. And that's where the nuance of understanding the existing system and what should happen or what needs to happen uh, becomes important. You know, I, I, I've written on this uh, for years and we made some early investments uh, in, in consumerism, mostly, you know, some, well, certainly exchanges and high deductible health plans. And in my gut, you know, my economics education tells me the only way that healthcare becomes um, sort of fixable to the extent that we, we want to use that term. And, but what I mean by fixable is where um, costs and quality seem to be in alignment with you know, what the consumer needs uh, is if the consumer is actually involved in the process. You know, Castlight, of course, makes light of that uh, with the idea that, that, that where you'd never go to a grocery store and not know what you were paying for the goods that you were purchasing. But the reality of it is Consumers do not understand uh, how healthcare is priced and what it costs, including the insurance policies they're buying. And that is a whole new world of information and really teaching that is probably the responsibility of some of these digital technologies that we're looking at um, to, to put them into the hands of, of hospital systems and insurance companies and employers so that people can really begin to understand exactly what they're signing up for. I agree, and I think we're going to see uh, not only do consumers not understand this stuff, we providers at the doctor and nurse and other levels don't understand the system that we work in every day, and that's because it is incredibly complex. Um, but I'm I'm very optimistic that there will be solutions. Um, <clears throat> I always I, I like the idea of of of, uh, of TurboTax for taxes, taxes of a similar level of complexity and nuance, and also lack of interesting material in large part. Which uh, which allowed companies like Intuit and TurboTax as a product to to be created and to be adopted um, as a tool that helped people deal with complexity in that environment. So I think we're going to see lots of we already are seeing lots of opportunities there um, uh, come come of age. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why this summit is is exciting for me <clears throat> in that is is that in the last 18 months there has been a huge amount of talk around digital health. Um, for at least five years and, and billions of investment made. And in the last 18 months, we've actually started to see a couple of public companies, lots of evidence that it is working, that we are changing, bending the cost curve, that we're changing outcomes with companies like Gomata. They were able to improve on di diagnostic yield. They were able to help physicians and nurses work uh, you know, more carefully and faster. 
And uh, so I think the promise is slowly becoming reality, but I think we're still at the very beginning of a multi-decade um, uh, transformation in how human health is transformed with technology. You know, I, I agree with you, and I would say that one of the frustrating things for me is the rate of change and the rate of adoption of technology. Sometimes I, I ask myself whether there has to be a generational change in the leadership of healthcare uh, and these companies in order for these, tech, for the, these technologies to be embraced because they really do, at the end of the day, change business at, as usual in a fairly substantial way for some companies that have been, been around for a long time. Yeah. Well, I would say as a provider, that's as a doctor, I, I sometimes get frustrated when I think through the investment, um, investment world of how slow uh, healthcare systems and payers are in adopting technology. But on the, on the other side, as a provider, um, for example, I've, I've seen the adoption of mobile technologies for care coordination. So my ability to contact physicians inside the hospital and other nurses and, and uh, coordinate care um, we've just started adopting those technologies like, um, you know, secure texting and messaging and other things in the hospital, which dramatically improves workflow. And, and it's taken three years longer than I thought it would to start to see the early adopters adopt. But if you think about healthcare, I, I liken it closely to aviation in that <clears throat> you, you really don't want to change things until you have a real plan that's validated to roll out because you know, there a number, when, whenever they look at, for example, um, a crash, they have to really figure out um, uh, what happened and then think about if they were to deploy that teaching across all kinds of pilots, whether it would be adopted, whether they could follow the, those, uh, those edicts and whether how much it would re kind of reduce the, the uh, risk for other uh, flights. All this is to say that, you know, everything, almost everything we touch in healthcare is critical path to some extent or other to someone's life. And so, uh, you know, I see this a lot with pilots of things. The pilots are important because pilot studies allow us to test something in a population before we throw it to everyone. Um, the last thing we want in innovation, in healthcare at least, is a number of patients getting hurt because we deployed technology too fast. And that's at the center of, of being a medical, of being a physician. That's the Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm. Um, so I, I agree. I think uh, when I put on my, my white coat, I slightly change my opinion because I see a lot of technology. <laughs> and my first question is always, as a provider, before I touch a patient with this, show me how you validated it, that it's worked. Right. And that, you know, that's the experimental method, and it's what has led to the, all of our great innovations in medicine. Um, well, well, Robert, I, th I think we've, we've, uh, we've run out of our time. Um, is there anything you'd like to add as we, uh, as we close our talk? Just one more line for the conference. Um, it's a really great mixture of the people I identified, which are the high growth companies, the investors, and the strategics. But as a conference, the reason why I've attended for so many years is that it's also a great networking opportunity with an intimate crowd of about 300 people. We have about five or six different segments of the day that are 20 minutes of open networking. Um, so it's a great mix of mixture of content and networking in a great city, Boston, uh, in the fall. Terrific. I'll be there. I look forward to seeing you there, and thank you very much for being with me today. Thanks, Steve. Well, that was an excellent conversation. Thank you, Steve Krupa of the Silos Group, for agreeing to host the Breaking Health Podcast. We're very excited to add this to the Healthogy lineup of content centered around innovation and healthcare. 
Breaking Health is affiliated with the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. And as you've heard, Dr. Robert Mittendorf, the chair of our event, has done a stellar job along with our advisory board in assembling an agenda that's going to hit upon all the right points facing healthcare innovators. So go to digitalhealthcaresummit.com, see the details about this agenda there, and then register to attend. We'll see you on November 3rd at the Mandarin Oriental in Boston, my hometown. Thanks very much. This is Tom Salemi of Healthigy, and tune in next week for our next Breaking Health podcast.